You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 118. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. You have reached another Local Maximum. I'm joined, as always, or as usual, by my co-host, Aaron. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm doing well. Glad to be here. Yes, episode 118. I said, we, I don't remember what I said in episode 110, whether I was like, by 120, I hope we're done with the whole coronavirus thing, or if by 120, we'll be starting to recover. Because if I said the latter, then I think that um, I have a good argument, but if, I'd have to go back and check the tape. Um, as, uh, as there there we'll was look- a lot we didn't know back then. There's yeah. a lot we don't know now, but there was even more we didn't know back then. Yeah, you could probably always say that and, and, until you start forgetting things, in which case it was like I knew <laughs> that actually happened at work when I came back to Foursquare. Now, there's a lot of there's a lot of times where I'm like, I knew so much back then and I know nothing now. Um, <laughs> that happens every day. Uh, but um, no. Well, yeah, I'm, we're going to talk about later how uh, how, you know, how how fraught the idea of saying I predicted it. That wasn't really a prediction so much as a hope, but just in general saying I predicted it beforehand uh, is when when you go back and then you see, no, that's not exactly what you predicted, you know? So uh, I'll, I'll have to check the tape on that one. Um, all right, let's start today with this this funny article from the New York Post. This was going. This is one of the ones that was going around social media, and so you may have heard it already and you didn't hear it, but I always like to start with something. I don't know if this is a positive note, but it's it's interesting <laughs> Uh, a five-year-old got caught driving to California. He was in Utah. He was attempting to drive to California, uh, and he said he was doing so to buy a Lamborghini. And I looked at the video on this, and yeah, the the car is actually pulled over, and the officer is speaking to a five-year-old. And it's so fun. You're looking at the officer, and you can kind of tell from the officer's voice that he's not sure if he should be like, you know, and where are you going, sweetie? Or if he should be like the tough cop, like, <laughs> where are you going? You know, but he's, he's not, he, well, at, you could tell he's kind of switching back and forth. At what point do you think he realized this, this is in fact a five-year-old and not just a, a, a small person who looks very young? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Cause, cause you, you, you don't want to, you don't want to judge that the wrong way and insult somebody. Uh, yeah, but he could ask. But, but at some point you, you, he must've realized, wait, this is, this is literally a small child. Well, not, uh, not just a a person of diminutive stature with yeah. youthful features. Right. I mean, yeah, there are people like that. I mean, uh, so they didn't actually show the beginning of it. Like, would he have asked, like, "Can I see your license?" I mean, that would have been that would have been strange. Um, but uh, yeah, it didn't show it. But I mean, man, that this guy, this kid, th- this kid. I don't know if he's going places or. or or what? I mean, but he he it, went places. He didn't get yes. there, but he. <laughs> well, I he mean, made it partway. He. Well, where did he get pulled over? Did he make it to California? No, he was still in Utah, but he was not. Okay. He was not in the same town that he started at. Uh, so he he got on the high. I could read the towns. I think he started in Ogden, Utah. Utah. I don't really know necessarily the geography there so much, but he did get on the highway. How did he know even to pull over when the cops came? The cops thought he was simply an, an impaired driver. Um, I don't, I, I, I hate to suggest it, but, but my first thought is, well, he's certainly played a fair amount of, of, uh, Grand Theft Auto or, or, or some equivalent, uh, 
driving video game and and so he has a, a fluency in in that kind of thing even if he hasn't well who knows how much joyriding he's done before this Man, and just hasn't yeah, gotten caught <laughs> i just don't see it i th- i would be scared to get into the car even well yeah probably yeah. well at, at, at that age i was still mastering uh Riding, riding my my bicycle. I oh yeah. I don't know if I had a uh, and I was a, a falling over all speeds the time. yet. Yeah, but, but I, I I was probably off training wheels by by that point. I certainly didn't know what a Lamborghini was, and uh, there's no way I would have had the funds to uh, to purchase one should I have arrived at the location for such an exchange. Well, well he he did say he had three dollars in his wallet. <laughs> well, he was probably thinking three dollars. Did, give did they confirm that, that there was, in fact, a Lamborghini on the other end of, of, of this journey? No. Or, or No, there, or, there wasn't. He, he just assumed California is where they keep the Lamborghinis. Yeah, yeah. It sounded like he had a family on the other side that had a Lamborghini. And I look, I don't want to speculate. It could be a bad situation at home. Otherwise, look, I, I mean, I'd be scared to just leave. I'd, at five, I would, probably wouldn't want to go more than like walk more than a few houses down on my own probably not even that i don't know well this this is he's he's swinging the pendulum it's our our generation became soft we didn't have to walk both ways uphill to school in the snow five miles uh it's he's just saying i'm tired of this he's taking it back he's he's not going to be he's not going to be soft he's not he's not going to stay home during this time of quarantine well, I definitely hope that um, I hope this kid has a good life and uh, he takes his uh, what what am I going to say like his 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 brass knuckles or his big <laughs> pair, his 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 uh, his his balls of steel and uses it for something positive. That's what I that's what I say. Yeah, the the kid can take initiative so hopefully that turns into something uh productive yeah i will follow up on this story in (laughs) in how many years until he oh well i I mean it's going to be like a decade or so until we can follow up with him as an adult so that's going to be a long way away all right um a couple announcements i was on a few other podcasts uh this week neither of which you drove to no uh i was on the data futurology podcast that's by Felipe Flores and I talked a little bit about my career in data science machine learning Foursquare similar thing in um, text tech talks daily uh, tech talks daily that's a podcast let me uh, let me pull up the um, let me yeah, pull have, up have the those episodes here. will they have have will they have aired by the time this episode comes so, out or are they so, in the pipe so tech talk daily is in the pipe uh, but Data Futurology is already out. Tech Talk Daily is, is a daily show. It's Neil Hughes. I really like the way he edited it. It's like, we will now take your ears to Brooklyn, New York. And it's like, can you hear my voice? I, I, well, you, you have to hear it for yourself. But uh, no, I really enjoyed being on it. A lot of, I talk a little bit about the podcast, but a lot of, a lot of these uh, a, a lot of these shows just want to talk about Foursquare a lot, which is, which is cool. Um, but, you know, um, maybe I need to find more local maximum type stuff to talk about as well. Uh, but I think, you know, there are a lot more podcasts are kind of career oriented. Um, so yeah, this, that, if you guys want to hear that, uh, definitely check it out. I'll link to that in the show notes page uh, this week, which is localmaxradio.com slash 118. We have a lot of things to talk about today. 
test set versus training set. You're going to learn about that. Um, some more coronavirus news. Yes, I know I try to avoid it, but a little bit. And we're going to talk about the Bitcoin halving. Uh, so that's going to be very exciting. So um, one thing I wanted to talk about uh, on my interview with Tech Talks Daily, which isn't out yet, but I was thinking like, did I contradict myself? Because I made two statements. You ever make two statements and you're like, hmm, if somebody was really out to get me, they would, uh, <laughs> they would put these side by side. You ever get that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So in this one, it was like I was talking about like, you know, bad products and people not designing for quality. And it was like, yeah, a lot of developers just want to throw crap out there. Not developers. It's, it's often it's often not the engineers who want to do this. I mean, sometimes it is. But, you know, it, it's often like managers and people like that. They just want to throw crap out there to get it out quickly to say they've got their to do. And then it's really bad for the for the users and people like that. And then on the other side, when I talk about rapid prototyping and building new things, I'm like, yeah, you want to get things out fast, you want to get feedback, so on and so forth. So I feel like that's a little contradictory, but the the difference is, you know, when you're building something new and you're putting it out for the purpose of getting feedback to make it better, it's it's a lot different than just trying to throw whatever over the wall and then run away. Um, so there's a little nuance there, but I think I need to be better at like explaining that. Maybe I need a more of a, I think I just did. That was the first time I actually explained it in coherent terms. So maybe I'll get better at it as time goes on. It's, it's a question of context. You, you need to know when you're in which of those two situations and apply the proper, uh, the proper assessment given that, that there's, there's not a, a one, one, uh, one approach to rule them all. That, that you can simply uh, apply in a blanket nature. So, right. Yeah, it's it's in in some cases the uh, the 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 perfect may be the enemy of the good, and the, and the answer is get it out now and iterate. And and other times uh, that that could be more harmful to your your product and your brand than than sitting on it until you can polish things a little bit more. Right. Right. It's always. I mean, yeah. The, there's always a, a choice on when to put something out. I mean, even when you say, well, the minimum viable product, that's still obje- uh, subjective on what the minimum sure, viable product yeah. is. People are like... And, and it depends eh, who your we, users are and what their yeah, expectations we are. We talk about that, that's, the minimal that's product. That's a group of beta testers. Yeah, we talk about the minimal product sometimes in, in meetings as if, which is like the, the smallest thing we can launch as if it's like some objective thing, which it totally is not. Um, and I've been in funny meetings sometimes where, uh, well... <laughs> They're funny meetings when you, um, they're not, they're usually very boring when you're in there, but they're very funny when you're telling other people after the fact what was going on in those meetings uh, sometimes. Um, So, all right. So this is an example. I want to talk about the test set versus training set. This is a concept for machine learning, but like we do on this program, we're going to help you apply it in your day-to-day life. So don't worry if you're not in machine learning, but this is an example from last week when I spoke to Christian Hubs of Artificially Intelligent on this show, and we were looking at an example where kind of like a, a fraudulent article where someone was claiming to have all this accuracy on predicting COVID-19 from pictures of someone's lungs, and it turned out that they were, quote, uh, training on the test set. Um, and so what does that mean? And I actually said, and this might have gotten people's attention because I said, hey, if I were, uh, if I had an intro to machine learning course 
and I had on the exam, you know, why do we need a test set and a training set? Or what's the difference between a test set and a training set? Or should you have a test set and a training set? And if someone just completely doesn't know that or doesn't, um, you know, doesn't know what that is, if that's your intro course to machine learning, I, I said, well, I'd, I'd fail them. I mean, maybe that was a little flip, but <laughs> so you might be wondering, uh, you know, what that is. And so I want to explain a little bit about what that is and, you know, what that could mean, uh, to, how that could apply to all of us. So the training set is generally, uh, so when you're trying to get a machine to learn, uh, you're trying to get a machine to learn a concept, whether the case in question was uh, image recognition, you want the machine to know the do these lungs, are these lungs infected or not? Or sometimes it's, are, are these, um, do these images show that the person has cancer or not? In the case of the stuff that I was looking at, it's, um, were, um, you know, uh, you know, is, is this piece of text positive or is it negative? Um, all of the machine learning things that, that you might do or all the things that you, and, and think about the kinds of things that you learn in your day to day life, like anything that you might you might learn. Training is the stuff that you, you see. Training is like the stuff that you see in school um, or you see in your instruction manual on how to, um, how to, how to recognize this concept. Likewise, when you're do, talking about machine learning, training is the data that the machine is allowed to see. And the test is the stuff that it's going to be evaluated on. Um, so if you think about it, uh, sometimes, uh, so Think about it this way, like uh, oftentimes in life, the problems that you face are not the same problems that you trained for, but hopefully the problems that you trained for will give you enough context to recognize how to solve the problems that you come out with um, in the end. So for example, the, um, you know, I mean, think about the test that you take in school, right? The, the, the ones in the book are not the same as the ones you take on the test, but oftentimes, like, hopefully you're not just memorizing the answers from the book. You're actually learning the concepts, and then you can go to the test and pass the test. So uh, uh, that's, um, that's, what it, that, that's what it means. And what can happen if we don't have that separation between the training set and the test set? Well, the problem is... In, in machine learning, and we could probably try to uh, move this over to human learning as well. Maybe we could try to do that in, in a second, Aaron. But um, the, the problem is that the machine will just simply memorize the data. So what does that mean, memorize the data? In other words, it will literally, let's say I show it 30 pictures of tigers and 30 pictures not of tigers. Well, it will see the 30 pictures of tigers, and then it will say, okay, this literal configuration of pixels, maybe let's make it a little simpler. Let's say of the, we show it 30 pictures of, of the digit four written out, right? So you could see it's a much, maybe even a simpler, a simpler image. But it will literally learn, okay, these, this configuration of um, different color pixels, this literal configuration is the number four. And, and are these 30 examples that I got of the number four. And then if it looks at the test set and the test set are, is exactly the same ones as the training set, then it's, it's gonna say, yeah, it did great. When in reality, anytime I write the number four down and take a picture of it, the pixels are gonna be a little bit different and it's not gonna be able to tell at all. And the only way we'd be able to actually make something good in that way is if we had every possible pixel configuration that um, a person would recognize as the number four, which is, 
impossible. Um, so how'd I do? Was that, was that, uh, was that explanation clear? Is there anything else do you think I need to add to that? Yeah, I, I, I think that makes sense. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good, a good parallel to that. Uh, and, uh, I mean, may, maybe, maybe take your multiplication tables, for example, that, right. that's, that's something that we, we've all had to learn at some point. Oh my God. Um, I was so bad at that. I was, y- yeah, my, my, what was it? Third grade teacher uh, told me that I would regret not learning them, and and she was right. Uh, but you know, it's there. There, there are two approaches. There. <laughs> wait, wait, There's... wait! I didn't get that, but I remembered we had these uh, sixty multiplication problems that you had to do as quickly as possible. Did you have that? Like your, your uh, we, I'm, I'm sure minute. we had had similar tests. Yeah, it was or, called or the, exercises like. Yeah, it was that. called yeah. the Mad Minute, and I was always the last one to finish. But you know, <laughs> I was very careful, and uh, honestly, yeah, it took a while. Well, anyway, I'm not gonna. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, so 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 there there are two approaches there. Uh, one one thing that that many people would do, and and which that that style of teaching was kind of geared towards, was memorizing your your times tables. So for everything from one times one to nine times nine, uh, you would memorize the results, and so you have those on fast recall. Uh, right. And that that works great as long as you're only ever trying to multiply the digits one through nine against each other. Uh, the minute you start uh, deviating from that and you're looking at multiplication of larger numbers or, uh, God forbid, multiplication of non-whole numbers, uh, that falls apart. And the fact that you've memorized uh, your, your, your multiplication tables uh, is of little or no value to you if you haven't also uh, in- intuited the underlying process that's going on there. Yeah. Um, and so, so you need to be able to either have your your training data set be uh, spread over a broad enough set of cases or somehow be able to extrapolate that to a wider uh, set of scenarios uh, for it to not be a, a particularly uh, fra- fragile is not the right word for it. Um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on what the proper word you're, is. You're for, able to draw for, generalizations. Yeah. You're saying. Yeah. I mean, so there's a big relationship between uh, this and overfitting. So we had an art episode on overfitting and underfitting, and um, and this is about overfitting in general. Even though uh, these, let me actually try to see what uh, episode that was. I'm sorry, I have episode a, sixteen. Yeah. Oh, 16. Wow. Okay. I'm sorry. You're probably here. I have a new mouse and keyboard that I ordered because mine is at work and it's, and I haven't seen it for two months. And I know these are very clickety clack. They're cheap. Um, mouse and keyboards. Well, some, so, some people pay good money. They pay extra for, for a satisfying click to their, their keyboard. Oh, okay. What is it? Is it the model M, uh, IBM keyboards? Uh, I didn't know that. So maybe I'm actually getting my money's worth here on this, uh, made in China thing. Um, okay. <laughs> So, but I mean, it looks, uh, we're going on a tangent here, but if you could see, I'm holding this up. The keyboard looks exactly like the Apple keyboard, but it's not. It's 20% the price. But anyway, um, so. And it, does, does it say like Arple on it? No, it actually has a Windows <laughs> key, which is uh, uh-huh. really weird. All right. So anyway, uh, back back to this. Um, training versus, so overfitting and underfitting, right? So overfitting is when you draw too many conclusions, right? And so the example that I gave uh, recently um, on, I think this is on uh, Tech Talks Daily, which isn't out yet, is, you know, toddlers making the, drawing the 
um, drawing the conclusion that um, older people are always taller, you know, or and all sorts of things that 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 um, that toddlers do. Um, but memorizing takes that to a whole new level, where it's so at least at least when you're saying older people are always taller, you're you're actually saying that um, you're actually you're actually doing some generalization, which is good. But in the memorization case, uh, it's it's like you've um, you've generalized so much to only stuff that is exactly true to the things that you've seen that you'd literally only be saying, oh, these groups of these people are always taller than these other people that I've seen. And I know nothing about any of the other people that I haven't seen yet, if that makes sense. So it's it's sort well, no, you'd still be generalizing, but you'd be so off the spectrum that you'd be over optimizing to the examples that you've already seen in the past, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, an, an, another another maybe uh, training metaphor would be um, the game of basketball. Let's let's take free throws for instance. That, okay. Uh, you know, the, the free throw is a pretty repeatable thing. Um, you know, it's always taken from the same sp- space place. The basket's always at the same height. You've always got the same ball. Uh, however, there are some variables that could change dramatically in the course of the game, both in in terms of uh, your mental and emotional state, but also uh, the lighting on the court, uh, the noise, uh, the you know the the temperature and and the air circulation in, in in the in the court, those could all be things that change. And if you only ever practice free throws, uh, you know by yourself from the free throw line uh, at a certain time of day uh, when it's sunny out uh, in you know the months of of uh, June, July, and August, then you may. Uh, find that your your free throw skills fall apart uh, when you start to vary any one of those those criteria, uh, yeah. and and so you 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 want to a you want your your training to to be broad, but also you want your uh, a, approach to your skill uh, to not be so focused on exactly uh, the the specifics of your your training regimen. Right, and also like the um, your. Your training set. So I think that's a good example, but I'm trying to think like, you know, why you would hold out the, the, the test set, like why you would give, um, uh, you know, I mean, the held out test set is clearly the game, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And in, in, in athletics, it's almost more of a I, I'm. No, 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 no. Actually, I think I'm, I'm going to go with this here uh, because I think. Okay. So so the game is you can't train on the game. So, right. Right. So that's why you need a broad training set. But uh, te- training on the test set is um, not something that could, you could do in athletics because each game is different. Yeah, I was going to say, but maybe maybe take a marathon, for example, in that uh, you, you can train all the component pieces, but uh, except for the day of the marathon, you're not going to have the road shut down and the course available and, and all the other pieces that allow you to string it together. Uh, and so... Uh, it's it's not an ex, an exact uh, analog there, but uh, the yeah, like you said, the the actual the 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 test set the 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 game day experience is is not available to you when you're training, right? Um, by by nature of the experience, yeah. Um, we and we, we can we can flip that a little bit with with machine learning and, and data. However, um, that's because we're we're evaluating the quality of our training with basically 
more training um that i guess that that would be kind of like uh we're 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 building a, ma- a machine learning algorithm to to play uh, basketball games and uh we're we're gonna train it on on maybe drills uh on the court yeah. and then we're gonna have a, a scrimmage game against uh, a friendly opponent and that's gonna be our test right but, completely separate from that is when we you know send it out into the wild and actually have it do what we've now completed training and evaluating it for that's game day well that's Um, in machine learning you have that too uh because you have you know that's when it actually gets used let me give you an example that's more on the machine learning side of things um let's suppose i'm trying to train again like the a picture of a cat right but all the training data it sees has black cats if you're a human learning learning what a cat is for the first time and you, someone shows you a different color, you'll have no problem because you have so much context about the world. But uh, the machine might do something very simple, which is just if it, if it ain't black, it's not a cat, you know, or something like that. Or one, one of the ones where it was like it taught a, a car to drive. I saw this in, in grad school. This is in Jan LeCun's class where it, it taught like not a car, but like a little remote car remote control car to like drive in a backyard with all these obstacles and it learns to always drive towards the sun. And the reason <laughs> was because, uh, the sun, seeing the sun is actually correlated with not having obstacles. Uh, so not bad, but, uh, I think a human would learn that actually, no, that's, that's not the same thing. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, it's, there's also something called online learning, which is probably, maybe sometimes more similar with what, what people do, uh, in which case you don't have a test set and a training set per se. So this, this rule about always having a test set and training set, it's, it's one of those rules that are like in, in ML 101, it's like you must have a training set and test set. And then when you get more advanced, you realize, oh, it's not always like this. And even if you don't have a training set and test set, um, there are, you know, it's like how some of the best authors always break the rules of English, but they're allowed to kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I think the, the key place where that comes into, into play is when you have limited data to work with that if, if you train against everything you have, then you have, there's, there's no independent resource available to assess the quality of your training. Yeah. Well, that's a problem. Um, and, and actually this, this loops back to a problem I worked on at my, at my first job. Um, out of out of college, we were uh, we were training a uh, a an, an algorithm to detect uh, ballistic missiles uh, and and to identify uh, the the what's the warhead, what's the less concerning parts of the missile, uh, what might be decoys, uh, and also uh, ideally to identify what kind of missile it is. You know, because uh, for, let's let's say for for argument's sake, we're worried about North Korea launching uh, a ballistic missile at us. Uh, it matters to us p- potentially which of the half dozen variants they might have uh, in that uh, what's the payload and and that might help us in, in prioritizing what are our our key targets there. Um, there are there's only so much data available on what North Korean warheads look like in flight. And if we train against all of it, then we have no valid source to determine the quality of our algorithm uh, afterwards. So we needed to isolate uh, part of that available data uh, into a a test and a training set so we could actually have uh, a a reasonable assessment of 
of how we tuned the model. There. So you did have a test and training set, right? And we did. Yeah. Yeah. And and obviously, so in the case that I was talking about with, with Christian last week, like obviously the case where he trained on one and tested on the other was just completely off base. It's totally overfitting. But I'm talking about, okay, what are the little exceptions that like the experts might might use uh, <laughs> once once you're like, okay, I have a one of them, well, one is online learning, which is there's kind of a test set in that um, you're given the examples one at a time. And so you're constantly adjusting after every single example. And so it's sort of like every new example is a test set, is, is a test example because you haven't seen that before. Um, so that's one of them. And then another one is there are Bayesian models that you can run where it's very, very unlikely that you are going to memorize the data and a good statistician can tell the difference. Let me give you an example. Uh, let's say you have, you see a thousand points in a scatter plot. Okay, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's height versus weight or something like that. And you see them roughly uh, arranged in a straight line. Okay, if I create like a, a Bayesian prior over what that line is and then calculate the line of best fit, which is usually like least squares re regression or something like that, uh, or, or it'll it'll reduce to that. Um, I'm not worried about that line overfitting that data set because there's only two parameters in the line and there's 100 pieces of data and it can't literally memorize the data set. Now, if you're trying to fit like a, 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 a thousand degree polynomial, that's a totally different <laughs> error and you're going to get a, just a line that like fits through all the data. And that's what, it, that, that's what, um, that, that's what, uh, test versus training. And so if you want to fit that polynomial to the data, which is a line that can like, you know, go up and down and hit every point like it's supposed to. Yeah, it might do that. But uh, if you have a new, yeah, if you hold I'm, out I'm some looking points, at you, Microsoft Excel. Yeah, if you're holding a few points out, then you'll see that it doesn't really work. Um, but I know with, because of experience that if I just fit that straight line, nah, it's okay. I don't need the, uh, I don't need the, I don't need the test set. Um, if if that makes sense, I don't know if that's if that's uh, if if someone else is uh, screaming at me here, but I, I think that's uh, yeah. well. And and the other thing that you have to think about when you're when you're uh, segregating your test set and your and your training set is uh, and and this this ties back to uh, a topic I believe you talked about with a previous guest uh, is you need to make sure that they're both uh, representative of the the sample space as a whole. Right. You don't want to accidentally uh, have your your training set uh, all clustered around a single key feature, which which then is going to become uh, you know encoded into your 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 trend line or your algorithm somehow, uh, and and will cause you to not be able to fit at all or or as well to uh, the the test set or the larger data set as a whole. Yeah, yeah, um, and I could see. Uh... Yeah, there's, I mean, that's that's a lot of stuff in practice ends up looking like that. Another point I had here when I was racking my brain is what if you can't hide data? So from the computer, we could hide data. From, from, from algorithms, we could say, okay, this data, it's not allowed to look at. But with humans, you can't really, if you've seen all of the data relevant to a certain piece of problem, to a certain problem, it's, uh, it's kind of difficult to say, forget it, you know? So... Um, Sometimes you have that issue, and that's where you want to have a Bayesian model, and you want to look at, okay, can I overfit given the parameters? I was thinking the other day, and I don't know if this is relevant, uh, 
Like I was looking at the fact that uh, ancient history, uh, like we know so little about what went on. Like oftentimes you look, they don't even know the date when this event happened or, you know, they don't know if, um, you know, if, if this guy was the king or that guy was the king or, or whatever, um, or, you know, you know, uh, what the extent of this empire was versus that empire. It's all this stuff is or basically like archaeology. You know, we, we don't know where this comes from. And I was thinking that field has a lot of areas where you have so few data points and I don't see how you can really create a test and training set that because there's nothing that we haven't in history we haven't seen um, unless it's like, okay, I'm going to forget some things and then add it back into the model later. But I feel like the, the data is so varied. It's not like a consistent data set like you get in machine yeah, learning. You almost have to have a Bayesian model. And I have not seen like Bayes rule applied to history yet. And I think that would be very interesting. Uh, un- unless you subscribe to some way of, of uh, utilizing the, the multiple universe theory, uh, there there is no control when we look at history. We can't repeat an experiment multiple times and, and, and look at the results. We only have the, the one true history. Uh, so it's, it's very, you, you can, you can kind of run your models backwards and see if they accurately map to what did happen. But, uh, it's, you, yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult to build kind of a, a training set on, on historical data like that. Yeah. I, maybe this is, we could do almost an episode on this. Like how can you apply? Cause we, we apply Bayesian inference to uh, current events. How about apply it to like historical questions? Because I don't do historians well, there's, there's, know Bayes. I don't think so. There's some great work done on, uh, and, and I haven't, looked into this enough to find out whether there's there's kind of Bayesian analysis involved here. But um, some of the the earlier plagues, so obviously the Black Plague and the, what is it, the Justinian Plague, and, and they're all getting the a lot of, of, of interest because of the current uh, situation. Uh, but there's, there's very uh, divergent views between historians on, on how severe some of these were, um, given, given the... Uh, so, some of it is because you know they have reports that that claim one thing, but they just they simply don't believe it because there's not the evidence to back it up. But then yeah, there uh, was fake consider, news back then too. Yeah, well, but but you have to consider well, if if that did occur, what signs would we be looking for, and and what is the the likelihood and the frequency that 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 evidence would survive to today and and in discoverable fashions? And so um, there's there's some convincing evidence that that in fact. Uh, contemporaneous reports were were accurate that that they weren't being exaggerated as many previous historians had had, had believed. Uh, it's just that the the likelihood of finding you know mass graves thousands of years later uh, and and their distribution uh, and and discovery uh, was was not being assessed uh, in a in a accurate fashion. And hmm. so they they were dismissing a lot of those reports uh, because of that. So. Uh, there's there's a case of both you know new new evidence coming to light and revising that, but also how we interpret evidence that we've had for a long time changing. Yeah, uh, for for that approach. Absolutely, absolutely. And the last point I wanted to make about this is you know if there's one takeaway, it's be skeptical of people because there are a lot of like snake oil salesmen and people like that who will claim <laughs> that they they have predicted it after the fact, and then you find out they didn't really predict it, um, or they claim that they would have predicted it 
Keep in mind, because a lot of times when people say they predicted it, what they really mean is they would have predicted it. But that is that is the phrase of testing on your training set. And so that's a, <laughs> an example I gave in episode 90 a few months back was this guy saying 13 factors that that uh, that, um, you know, control presidential elections. And it's like that is a lot of parameters for a very small data size and it's not like uh you've been that accurate um in in when applying this to it's not like you came up with this in 1983 and accurately predicted the next bunch of elections uh even though he he came up with it early on but like he tweaked it once or twice and i'm like that is a big no-no because even if you predicted every election starting with 1983 that's still not that uh it's still not that impressive um, especially well, the, since the, some of those elections were pretty easily predictable. To bring it into the context of a, a, a topic that uh, in 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 our world today is is somehow become less controversial, um, if if you look at climate models, uh, there's there's a lot of talk about well, what happens if you put historical data in and predict it, and and you have to be very careful about yeah your your trusted testing versus training data there because obviously if if your input to building that climate model was the last 60 years of temperature data, then you can't make any reasonable assessments by putting in the last 60 years of temperature data and seeing if it predicts the current temperature. Right. Um, but if you trained it on you know the last 10 years uh, and then you go back and start it with temperature data from 60 years ago and see if it arrives at, at where you are now, that, that might be a good indicator of the robustness of your model. Yeah, or, or having it look at um, like let's say 1980 to 1990 and then predicting 1990 forward from that or something like that. Right. So, or, right. Yeah. But, but you just have to make sure that, that like, like we said, you're not, you're not training on the same exact thing that you're testing it on. Exactly. You've got to somehow segregate that. Yeah. And like and machine learning segregate. algorithms are, are tricky. Like they'll, they'll learn it. They'll create a rule. Like if year equals 1998, then uh, give it a boost. Um, you know, because 1988 was a hot year. Yeah, well, they, their machines are really good at finding the the correlation, uh, and they don't necessarily care if there's causation because the data doesn't differentiate it between that without without context. Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. I think that's I think that that says it right there. If you want to learn, if you want to learn more about the test training set, if you have any questions about it, email me localmaxradio at gmail.com. Be happy to answer your questions. Um, I get to everyone's message eventually. I might not get to it in like the next day or so, but I get to it eventually. <laughs> All right. So um, let's go into a little bit of news. How about that? Um, and maybe we'll try to bring it back to this topic. Uh, the first one I have here, this is my home state of New York. Uh, New York Governor Cuomo says it's shocking that most new coronavirus hospitalizations are people staying home. And this is just, this is from CNBC, but this is from like his morning meeting. So the, his morning. Now, now what does that mean? They're, they're both hospitalizations and they're staying at home. Okay. So the graph that he shows are people are from the source of admission. So it's a source of admission is 66% at home. Now, honestly, that does not surprise me because source of admission to me says you're being taken from home to the hospital. Where else would you be taken? Yeah, 
Yeah, you're not going to be at work. Yeah, um, uh, I mean, unless unless you work at the hospital, maybe. Yeah, I mean, or, or you're one of the the small small percentage of people who are essential workers, right? Exactly. Now. So I was like, that that can't be it. the The other big sources are nursing homes, and lower than that is assisted living. But it's like, okay, those are both homes too. So it's like that's where people would be. And then there's like two percent is homeless. So it's 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 literally like, yeah, I, where else would you be taken uh, to the hospital? But I think the uh, the stat that was um, more relevant, even though it's weird because the the articles are all quoting the sixty six percent number, which is totally meaningless. Uh, so <laughs> you have to. I mean, sometimes these articles are put together such haphazard way. Um, so the key stat I think is eighty four percent of hospitalizations were from people who say that they're mainly staying home and not commuting to work. And so, you know, the the speculation was most people are getting on the subway and, and traveling and things like that. And so the um, the the data shows that 84 percent of hospitalizations were people who were not commuting to work. So let's talk about that a little bit, because a lot of people are drawing conclusions from that and sending it around the Internet and having, you know, immediate conclusions from that. And uh, let's just say in this article, I'll quote from this article, it says, while data shows the coronavirus is on the decline in New York, the new survey results appear to clash with Cuomo's prior assurances that isolation can reliably prevent transmission. So before we talk about that, we have to mention that there is a Bayesian argument here that since most people are sheltering at home, uh, you know, therefore... Most people who are hospitalized will be sheltered at home, even if sheltering at home reduces your risk significantly from going out. So it could be that if you ride the subway every day, your chance of getting it is twice as likely as staying at home. Let's just let's just use that number twice as likely. So, but if so, there are more so than twice the number of people staying at home, then more people staying at home are, are, are going to come down with it. So we need to concern ourselves with the base rate here, which which is being driven by by, like you said, the fact that the the vast majority of people are staying at home uh and so uh you're going to see a disproportionately high uh proportion of, of those people making up your your new infection yeah so i mean my question is Re- what regardless of whether they they each individually have a higher or lower risk than other other groups right so the question is like what what percentage of people are staying home? Because usually to get the real counterintuitive ones, you have to have like a 99% uh, of people at home. Uh, like in the usual counterintuitive, like the test for for cancer, that's 1% or that's 99% accurate, but it's like one in a million uh, get it. Then uh, if you test positive, you still probably didn't get it. That's the typical uh, Bayesian example. Right, right. So, I mean, uh, in this case, it doesn't, seem like it's going to be quite that extreme. Um, are there, is it 99% of people at home? Is there a way we can kind of think in our heads whether that's the order of magnitude? I'm not sure. Um, like, what what would yeah, be the it order? it would be tough to get numbers on that without doing like a, a, a what is it, a Fermi estimate. Uh, yeah, like, I'm trying to think of how to do that. Like, there's definitely people out delivering food and delivering packages and working in the buildings and that sort of thing and working. Well, I was going to say that that's that's the other question yeah. is is that uh, how do you define 
being in isolation. Right. Uh, what what level of of you know are are, are we talking uh, people who don't go out at all uh, for you know periods of multiple days? Are we talking people who they they only go out to go to the grocery store you know once or twice a week uh, or or somewhere in between or you know well I I only go out to go to the office but uh, I go straight to the office and then I sit at my desk and then I go straight home. Does that count as isolation? I, I think. We're talking about people who are not working, or, or yeah. working from home. But more specifically, but even people who are who are yeah. working from home or not working, they're they're still, uh, for for the most part, they're they're still being uh, exposed or interacting with people in some limited fashion. Right, right. So it's hard to draw a strong conclusion here. Um, I, you know, it's it, there's also no mention of. Exactly. The degree of precaution, how many people you live with and what they're doing is not included here. The nature of the home, like some people say, like, okay, if people are in, you know, uh, very dense buildings, very bad air circulation. I don't know. We, we still don't know. Um, so I, I'm, I wouldn't draw a strong conclusion from this other than, yes, it's expected that people at home will get this. Um, still, does it show that maybe the government doesn't know what it's doing by forcing everyone to stay at home. And, uh, and you know, there are some people who kind of are jumping on this and ignoring the Bayesian argument and say, aha, see, staying at home is worse. But uh, I don't know. Maybe they're kind of right in that it's not so cut and dry. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And and there's also the, uh, I think there's there's been a lot of talk in the last week or two about what is, what is the the goal of of these stay at home orders? What has it been, um, and uh, that that perhaps uh, there is not a way out of this this that involves everyone staying at home uh, and not getting infected until there's a vaccine? Uh, that there's some sort of middle ground there. But uh, we've we've cottoned on to this idea that we need to isolate and protect ourselves and and uh, you know pre- prevent. Uh, infection and that's that's the thing we need to be doing now and we haven't necessarily thought through what the implications of that in the medium to longer term are uh so yeah it's 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 maybe a case of of uh when when you set uh when you set kpis when when you have things that you're going to measure and and uh and rate yourself on then uh that's what you get whether or not that actually helps you reach the the ultimate goal that you actually have right right it's um yeah, I, I when I started staying at home all day after a few days, I started getting like a sore throat and was tired. And every day I woke up, I'm like, "That's it, I have it, I'm gonna die." <laughs> you know, like this is at the beginning, right? And I, I never got it, or at least as far as I, I like, who knows? Maybe I'm an asymptomatic, but I always got better after like an hour or so. And I think it's just from staying in with all the dust and the, you know, and the air not recirculating and all that. Um, so. I guess the point is maybe staying at home 100% of the time is not that healthy. I, I'm taking walks and trying to get some sunlight and with the idea that maybe that will be better for me. Who knows? We'll, we'll find out if, I, you know, if I'm dead next week, then you'll know that's not the right thing to do. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, we'll, uh, we'll, see what, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens there. I'm sure we'll learn a lot more after the fact. We'll have... Uh, we'll have a lot more knowledge at a time when it won't be that useful to us. Unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. And, and 
in in news that should be surprising to no one, especially people who who listen to this podcast, uh, humans at large are bad at assessing risk, uh, and and this is so many people. This, this has not changed that. So many people I know are so much more hyped up about this now than they were two months ago when it mattered, and it, like the I feel like in New York the danger is going down, but the um, the like uh, the the anal germophobic um, uh, uh, tendencies of people are going up, which is uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's cu- culturally uh, and and bureaucratically, we're we're big uh, big subscribers to too much, too late. <laughs> too much, too late. Yeah. Okay, so it's the opposite of too little, too soon. Um, no, too too well, little, too late. I, I, Never mind. It's too I little. guess you get both of those. Too little, too They're late. not mutually exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> you you get too little, too soon, and too much, too late. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, there's a lot of articles that came out about the antibody tests, and I'm just going to go into this real quick. Um, so there's some. So uh, one of the my listeners, our listeners, sent out uh, on Quartz.com uh, a new antibody test that's come out that apparently is a lot more accurate than the old antibody test. So the new test is called the, is from Roach and the old test is from Celex. I don't know if this matters. I'm just, I'm reporting on it. So let's see. It, the Celex one was uh, 98.3% accurate at detecting the antibodies and 95.6% uh, ru- uh, uh, ruling out the presence of antibodies. So that's called sensitivity and specificity in this. In machine learning, we usually call that false positives and false negatives or uh, or sometimes we call it um, um, precision and recall. Uh, they all mean the same thing. It's basically like, do how do we screw up? How, uh, wh- how often do we tell you you have it when you don't? And how often do we tell you you don't have it when you do? So this new test claims to be 100% accurate in detecting positives. In other words, if you are positive, it will definitely, if you are positive for antibodies, which is what you have after you get the virus, there's a hundred percent chance it'll show up on the test and 99.8% chance that, um, it will, uh, it will, so it'll miss it. It, It'll say you have it when you don't have it, but I actually think it's a a lot, or, or it'll, it'll see, this is where precision recall gets confusing. I like to put it this way. If you do not have the antibodies, there's still a one in 500 chance that it will say you do. That's that's a way better way of putting at it rather than giving the 99.8% accuracy. No, we want to know the good stuff. The interesting stuff is when it's not accurate. Uh, so, so one in 500.02%. Um, 100% accuracy bothers me. I feel like there's always some probability. Yeah, that, that should be a red flag. Yeah. Uh, but I guess I, if they're reporting I'm, I'm, 99.8, then we know it's it's greater than 99.8. But there's there's always... Yeah, maybe... maybe it's worth giving them the benefit of the doubt that that their number is actually you know 99.999 something yeah. and and they they rounded to the the closest uh tenth of a percent yeah. but uh that, that's that's still that 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 automatically requires further uh further investigation yeah. before no but this this is them. important because the the rumor i heard or the the news that i heard is what 20% of new yorkers have these antibodies and i don't know if that's true, I don't know if it's detecting other coronaviruses or if it's if it's wrong. And so, having a more accurate test kind of gives us um, kind of gives us a good sense of what's going on here. Uh, let me just read a little bit. Well, so, what are, what are they using for? 
I, I, I guess what is yeah? How do they know it's what that? is their their uh, their test data versus their training data here? What, <laughs> That's a good question. How, how how do they verify their results? So yeah, a hundred percent of these tests that 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 came back with it with a positive. What other method are they using to determine that the antibodies are in fact there? Yeah, I mean, typically you'd use a more expensive method to test it, and then uh, the cheaper method. So you also have to know if if the more expensive method has. Uh, doesn't have 100 percent accuracy. It's- this is why uh, in in the uh, in the hardware world you you spend big big amounts of money on sending your equipment out to be calibrated by somebody because they have another piece of equipment that's been calibrated by somebody else and it goes all the way back to what is it you know NIST or ANSI or whatever the French uh, uh, organization is that has the the original one kilogram weight and the one meter stick. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> no, no, yeah. Okay, so that goes into this quote because I'm trying to uh, understand this quote. Despite the increased accuracy, no antibody test is perfect. The Roach test still leaves room for error. Currently, the accuracy of Roach's test is based on blood being drawn at least 14 days after the infection. So are they testing their test 14 days after the infection when it could be more accurate? Or are they only... Um, or, do, or are they no, saying I, it only I, I works? I think they're saying that, that these this 100% uh, accurate positives and 99.8% accurate negatives only works if, if it's 14 days after infection. Yeah. So this is, this is a lot like, uh, with pregnancy tests, um, that well, you eventually uh, get the real answer on that. <laughs> right. You, that, that, that there's, there's, there's a, uh, uh, maybe, maybe not an, uh, an asymptotic, but there's, there's a curve there where you, you could take it early and, you know, maybe it's, it's 75% accurate. And if you wait till the next day, well, then it's it's going to be eighty something percent accurate. And if you wait, you know, three or four more days, then then all of a sudden you're hitting you know ninety eight, ninety nine percent accurate. Uh, but there there may be a uh, there's there's a, a cost benefit there that maybe you want the seventy five percent accurate answer now rather than waiting two or three more days to get the ninety eight percent accurate yeah. uh, answer. Okay, great. So this is important. I want to say why, because I'm going to go back to a New York Times article that I'll also link, uh, you know, about coronavirus antibody prevalence. Um, essentially, uh, you know, if we use a more accurate test, we, we, we have been using more accurate tests more and more over time. The New York Times says we now know that more people get antibodies after recovering from the virus, the vast majority, which is not surprising to me since I learned very early on that this is how every coronavirus ever studied works and people are like oh no 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 one gets antibodies yeah and then and then i read that that's just a rumor but uh coronavirus is not no coronavirus works like this in the past so i'm like okay i don't think this is but anyway um having antibodies is not the same as having immunity to the virus but in previous research uh, one doctor's team has shown that antibody levels are closely linked with the ability to disarm the virus, the key to immunity. So um, a lot of this scary. Could, could we safely substitute the term closely linked with correlated? I don't uh, know. Or... Yeah, it's it's it could mean that. Look, this could be very good news that, uh, yes, people are immune to the virus. And I, honestly, I don't see how you see the drop in infection rates like we do across the world in places that have had this for a while, unless people do get a strong level of immunity. Um, but, you know, there's always that asterisk, like nothing is certain. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's, skip to, let's skip to Bitcoin. Man, I, I've been talking about Bitcoin since the beginning, and this is going to be relevant uh, our, our whole lives. I promise you that. I mean, well, okay. I, I'm, 
I'm very strongly well, the, look. Yeah, I, I'm I'm putting the cart ahead of the horse here, but th- this this will stop happening eventually, right? Oh what? Oh well, it's so, okay. So this is called you're talking about Bitcoin itself or the having. The the having. Okay, yes. let's talk about the having. This is a once in four year event, and the having countdown now says that this will happen. It could be stopped by no one, and it happens in exactly two days and twenty four hours. Which by the time we're recording this, and by the time we're putting out this uh, this episode, is Monday evening. Monday evening on May 11th, when this goes out, episode 118 is going to be almost exactly the time when the halving is going to happen. And the halving uh, governs the issuance of new Bitcoin into the system. Um, And every four years, the number of Bitcoin, the, the rate of introduction of new Bitcoin gets cut in half in this new monetary world. So it is there is a cap, that means, because if you take a half plus a quarter plus an eighth plus a sixteenth, you'll never actually reach two, right? And likewise, if you take the um if you take the uh if you look at the issuance of Bitcoin, you'll never reach more than twenty one million units of Bitcoin in the world. Um right now there's 18... Po- but, but will it ever reach exactly 21 million? I, is there a mechanism for that? Or it, it will just approach it uh, infinitesimal? It will approach the maximum... No, I think at one point it stops happening and it just um, it just stops... Just runs out the clock? Yeah, it, it, there's a zeroing eventually. But it's okay. not until uh, like 100 years from now, over 100 years from now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So there's 18.3 million Bitcoin currently... In, in circulation, not necessarily in circulation, like some people are holding it long term, but, uh, you know, out into the system. And there's going to be 21 million total. Um, and we know that over half of the remaining will come out in the next four years and so on and so forth. So and, and so this happening will will uh, barring uh, major advances in medical science, this will continue for the remainder of our lives. Well, uh, <laughs> I don't think it matters uh, medical science or not. Um, I, uh, <laughs> well, you, but, you said you said there's a point where it zeroes. Oh, oh, uh, yes, yes. Uh, but that's in that. I think that's in twenty one, twenty four, something like that. Uh, but by that point, it'll already be like ninety nine point nine 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 percent of all Bitcoin have been mined. As it is, like like the um, the the new issuance will be insignificant at that point. Um, So this is we've never seen a monetary system like this. All the other monetary systems in the world are printing like crazy. You know all those burr memes, and this one, (laughs) at the same exact time, it just so happens is cutting new production in half. Can't be stopped. Can't be reasoned with, and um, this will continue to occur out into the future. A lot of people have made strong predictions on what this means and whether this is the uh, good basis for a monetary system, but the system doesn't care. It's going to do it anyway, and so we'll have to see uh, how it works. Uh, the article, which is, well, this is an article linked to on Bitcoin, says, is Bitcoin designed to rise every four years? And because we did have a happening in 2016 and 2012 to look back at now, it's only two data points, um, but in both cases, uh, you know, there was a bit of a, uh, a downward trend or like a, a sideways trend for a month or two. And then in 2012, it just shot up. Um, and well, at that point, it was late 2012. So by that point, it's 2013. It just shot up very dramatically. And then in 2016... But, but after the... Yeah, yeah. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't in the lead. Yeah. Up. And okay. then in 2016, 
it started going up two months later as well, but it was a very slow uh, build uh, until then, until 2017, uh, at the end of 2017, 18 months later, you got the the peak. So both of them were preceded by a long-term bull market. And so the question is, is this going to be similar? I like the fact that, you know, people aren't crazy about Bitcoin right now. So uh, the, fa- the idea that it's priced in is like, well, there aren't crazy speculators as there, as there have been at certain periods of time. Interestingly enough, um, before coronavirus broke out, the price rose from like 7,000 to 10,000. Then there was this shock with, with all that was going on, and it dove down to like 6,000, 5,000, even below. And now it's already back up to around 10,000 as the time I'm speaking. So hugely volatile. Um, and so it, it's certainly going to be fun to watch. Um, yeah, hugely volatile, but uh, well, I'm, perhaps more more volatile in its its magnitude than than the uh the stock market but but uh i'd say largely moving with it in 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 these days well yeah i mean it, that there was there was major losses and then much of it was recovered uh in the last month yeah but uh the the i feel like in bitcoin it was all reco- it's all been recovered pretty much okay. and in the stock market uh the stock market not quite so yeah i mean it's it's this is the emerging internet of money. I know that's like sounds like very 2015 way to describe Bitcoin, but it's still accurate. And it's still it sort of makes little pounces, little um, you know, it, it makes a small move every year and it doesn't go away. And it's almost like it's building, it's building, it's building. And so uh, this is like the most significant, most the slowest moving story <laughs> there is, but it's uh it's well, fun it's, to cover. It's it's good that we have this. So you know it, it we 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 lost the Summer Olympics. Now we 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 that that uh, was a quadrennial uh, event is not happening. Um, so we're stuck with the happening and the U.S. presidential election. Okay, okay. Uh, well, I we could talk about. There's not a whole lot to say about the happening other than it's happening and this is very exciting. And it, we could talk about how we think this affects the prices. As time goes on, and how this, how the price can ultimately affect adoption and that sort of thing. I mean, look, if the if the price goes up, that just means more people are holding more of it, or if anything, the same number of people are holding more of it. So that's already adoption increasing just by holding it. Like the same people are now using it more, and that they're holding more value in it. Um, but uh, it it's it's interesting that when Satoshi Nakamoto created Bitcoin way back in. 2008, launched in 2009, he had to decide how often the halvings were going to be, um, assuming that we're going to make it a halving, not a thirding or a quarter. Like he could have done a quartering every eight years and have something similar happen or, you know, have the change occur continuously or every two years or whatever. But let's say he said, OK, no, we're going to have a halving. It's very different to say there's going to be a halving every one year versus a halving every four years. If you do a halving every one year, then the people who are in it very early on capture most of the market. If you have mm. the halvings every 10 years, then that gives uh, later adopters more of a chance to catch up, even though in both cases you have a, a constant supply in the end, at the end of the day. So why four years? Is that the happy medium? And I have not seen, maybe I could read Satoshi's book on why that issuance schedule was chosen, because it's, 
it doesn't seem like it's been an issue, right? It doesn't seem like um, people complain about the about the issuance schedule. And is that because it's perfect or because maybe it didn't matter that much or maybe it just had to be in a certain range? That's That, to me, is an interesting question. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of unknowns there. And, and I mean, may, maybe it was arbitrary, but... Uh, you you have to wonder with a lot of things like this in a system that that seems to be working, uh, you know, has has, well, I I suppose no matter what value he had assigned to it, it would reach some sort of equilibrium, um, and and this is the equilibrium that we're living with. Uh, the equilibrium of what issuance or uh, or price or what? Well, if 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 he if he'd structured it uh, differently with with the the happening happening at a dif- at a at a different rate or if, or if he'd made it you know quarterings instead of happenings right. or, or or something along those lines that that it certainly would change the the trajectory of of bitcoin uh but but it's it the the presumably the the market or the uh, the currency would would have adjusted to it it's, sure it's, sure but it would uh, be it, it, it it will find its equilibrium somehow. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I do get this feeling though that if it were significantly, if it were happening every year, then it, it would just be like, well, um, you know, there's the, all the early adopters own like way too much of a percentage of the system. Maybe that's still true today. And if it were ten years, it wouldn't have you wouldn't have these dramatic price ri- rises as much because it would be too slow going. But I don't know. Uh, I guess we'll find out. Um, I, I'm sure this will be discussed more, you know, in the future. I want to discuss it more. I want to, I'll look, search the internet to see if anyone's discussed this in the past. All right. Finally, I've been trying to get this for a few, few weeks. Uh, so, and I know we're going to be a little over time today. That's okay. Uh, cause this is a, a fun article. Cause a lot, I enjoy the movie, uh, Demolition Man from 1993. It's with Sylvester Stallone and, um, uh, Sandra Bullock. It's one of her first movies, actually. She was unknown. Um, Wesley Snipes and, and Rob Schneider. And so they interviewed... So one of the premises of this movie is that there were all these disasters and the government of uh, Los Angeles or Southern California... Southern California became like a, uh, a totalitarian state. And so uh, uh, one of the ideas is no one could touch each other because of all the diseases that happened. And so people are taking another look at this movie, which uh, oftentimes is, um, you know, has a lot of things in it that seem to be prescient, which is kind of interesting. And so Daniel Waters, the writer, was interviewed recently, and I found it very interesting that uh, he was not trying to be prescient. prescient. He was not trying to make a point. He was just trying to make a funny action comedy movie with, um, you know, he's got some charismatic actors in there, the ones that I, uh, that I said. He's like, okay, I have these, uh, I have these people um, who, are, who are funny or, 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 or good-looking or, uh, you know, have interesting personalities, and I want to put them in this sci-fi world and, uh, you know, make a good movie, make a kind of an early 90s uh, box office hit, and he was very good with that. And um, it's interesting how... You know, they were not going for what it's become uh, 27 years down the road. Um, so let me read a, a, a couple of clips from the article, which is on Vulture.com from, from the interview. Uh, they say, like, the sci-fi movie, which features Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes shooting and quipping their way through a scandalized, sanitized, 
2032 Los Angeles has been a cultural touchpoint ever since it came out in 1993, particularly for the right. They're talking about like the right wing. Uh, I don't think it's entirely for, for the right. I think other people have. But anyway, that, that's their take on it. Who have seized on its restrictive utopia as a metaphor for government overreach. But the ongoing pandemic has a funny way of creating new resonance for a familiar fare. And that's been especially true for the 27-year-old action comedy. It's set, after all, in the near future in which handshakes have been completely replaced by an absurd no-contact alternative. The only surviving restaurant is Taco Bell, and people use a mysterious trio of seashells instead of toilet paper, which uh, now that toilet paper is so hard to get, maybe it'll have to do. Um, (laughs) By the way, the Taco Bell thing, you said, yeah, it's totally, you know, that wasn't the original idea. It was just Taco Bell was willing to pay for the... uh, you know, they were willing to do the product placement, and it turned out it's probably a very valuable product placement. I bet they don't regret that one. It it could have been McDonald's, yeah. but they are not going to survive the apocalypse now. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the fun, funny quote was, so a lot of times this is used to show, like, the problem of political correctness. Um, there's a funny scene where, like, they're, he, like Wesley Snipes is like a uh, a murderer from the past, and he comes in, and the police are trying to arrest him, and they're, and they're like, please... Uh, please, uh, you know, put your hands behind you so that we can arrest you. And they're like, uh-oh, he's not doing it. What do we do? And they check, like, a YouTube video. Not, they didn't call it a YouTube video, but they check a video. They're like, okay, now stand uh, stand upright and say more forcefully, please come by. And he's like, okay, I'll try that now. And, uh, and it just didn't work. Um, you know, so it's uh, – so the quote I got from the writer was – it's like, whoa, whoa, what am I going to be, Mr. Anti-Politically Correct now? No, I'm just having a little fun. So it seems like he is, you know, he, he doesn't necessarily like the takeaways people are having about his film these days. He doesn't like the anti-politically correct takeaway. I mean, maybe he would agree with the, you know, you got fined every time you you, you, you said a, a, a unapproved word or something like that. Like, a, like, And it was funny. It was like, you know, things like, you know, damn or something can like get you a little... A uh, little ticket, uh, which, which he ends up using as, as toilet paper. Uh, sorry, I'm spoiling it for you, but uh, <laughs> but um, but uh, no, um, yeah, I, I, he he didn't like the fact that it was being used by the anti politically correct movement and not the anti social dist- anti social distancing movement. I guess I'm not. No one's like anti social distancing, maybe, but it's I'm not anti social distancing. But I more feel like the idea that you have like this. Uh, uh, you know, this authoritarian state that's going to tell everyone what to do for our own good, for our disease, is not something I like. And I think that the, I think that the movie illustrates that. And I kind of find it funny that the actual writer doesn't see that. He's just, he's, he's a good storyteller <laughs> and he told the truth in spite of himself. And I think good storytellers do that. Well, and, and I had to look it up to check the, the timeline and make sure this, this, indeed holds up but uh so this this came out in 93 uh 92 was the la riots so oh yeah uh, having a a, definitely uh, yeah it was uh, affected right right after when when la was possibly its most its its dirtiest and and most uh uh you know most social disorder that it's been in recent memory so uh visualizing a a pendulum swing like that uh makes sense in, in, in that context. It's interesting. So you, you've not, you have not seen the movie, right? So I have, I have oh, not. So if you watch uh, I, it, you'll I, see that's exactly what they were thinking. Yeah. Um, yeah, but... Interesting. I've, I've, 
I've seen a lot recently about uh, about roof Koreans, uh, and and so that's reminiscent of of the the LA riots. But uh, I, I'm I'm not too steeped in in the history of it beyond that. Yeah, no, but if you, I mean, I watched this movie last only a few months ago, which is really strange. You know, not a few months ago, like before the coronavirus epidemic, and I probably last saw it before 15 years earlier. And now I'm like, damn, now I have to see it again because it's like there are people <laughs> refusing to shake hands. There's funny when like the, uh, you know, the police smile at each other and they do this little like circular air handshake. Um, and uh, it's, um, it's uh, there's there's this funny scene where, you know, there's, there's no kissing allowed, and you're, there's there's a sex scene that's like, you know, it, it's like virtual, uh, and and Sylvester Stallone <laughs> is like taken aback because uh, he's like, that's not what I had in mind, and so it's uh, oh, and the leader, the like the dictator guy, he's always like he's always telling everyone how bad things would be if it weren't for him, and they he allowed people to do what he wanted, and he holds these like funny meetings with with teleconferences, which are like funny little iPads on sticks that are at every chair which is uh, they didn't think you could put everyone's head on the same screen. No, you needed a different screen for everybody's head, <laughs> which, uh, which is interesting. Maybe that is the future. Different screen for everybody's head. Let's do take away from that. <laughs> well, with the, the, the handshaking thing, uh, that, that, made me, that brought me back to the days of the Obama administration when uh, I, I don't even know why people got upset about this, but there was the whole thing with the, the, the terrorist fist bump, like when he... he to say he refused to shake hands is probably incorrect, but someone expected him to shake hands and instead they went for the fist bump and uh, that there, there was outrage over that. Re- remember those days? When there was outrage over a fist bump? I like fist bump, but is yeah. fist bump actually, uh, it's probably better than handshaking, but you could still. I, 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 b- better, but but yeah, b- better, not best. Yeah. I feel like the fist bump was just cooler than the handshake. That's why he was doing it. But that was, that was an outrage. That was, uh, yeah. A, well, yeah, for for certain levels of outrage. Now, the the other the other movie that this reminded me of in 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 the sense of of perhaps being prescient uh, is that for for a while people have been talking about how Idiocracy was uh, oh, yeah. uh, not a comedy but a but a documentary, and, and uh, I I can't imagine that when they made that movie they weren't intentionally uh, being being speculative and and. Uh, harshly critical in the way that they were right Um, they they can't weasel out of of uh of taking responsibility well yeah i mean i listened to um an interview with with mike judge who's the writer of that also beavis and butthead and he said that his so the movie came out in 2006 he said the inspiration from it was um like uh you know 2001 a space odyssey which is actually one that i haven't seen maybe i should see that one but well, shame on yeah. you. Yeah, uh, so I should see that. All right. Um, are you are you are you being are are you being serious? I, should I see it? It 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 is a classic worth watching. Um, I would be very curious to hear your opinions. Okay. On it. I mean, I already know. You know, I can't do that, Dave. But uh, you know, there's just too many parodies of it. I've probably seen. Oh, it's like The Godfather. I felt like when I saw it, I'm like, I already saw this scene in Rugrats. You know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, there's 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 a danger to it, not necessarily because of parodies, but there there are a lot of things that movie did that it was groundbreaking. Yeah. But uh, since then, there are other 
it's it's been done by a lot of other move, other films and and some perhaps better right perhaps but not this is the first but but it, it won't have the impact that that it might have had if you'd never seen anything like that right. before okay yeah I, I could watch with that in mind I so the interesting thing he was saying it was two thousand one and he was like expecting the world to be like Space Odyssey but he was at a um, you know a theme park and just you know witnessing some people being like absolutely idiots and being like, no, that's not the future. This is the future. Um, so, uh, uh, so, so he met Florida man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He met Florida man at the, um, at the theme park. And this 2001 was, uh, was, uh, was, was inspired to write it. I don't know what, um, if idiocracy has any extra value well, there are some people who argue like, yeah, it's like all the people who are out protesting are idiots. I don't know if I would put, like an idiocracy. I don't know if I would put it that way. It's more like, but you definitely see, oh, no, no, no. I, I definitely saw an example, an article that was an example of idiocracy recently. Um, I'm totally scratched. That. It had nothing to do with the pandemic. It was an article where I saw like they released the wrong person from jail. Uh, actually, it was because of the pandemic. It was because they were all wearing masks. So one of the guys oh, pretended no. to be someone else and they released him from jail. And that's exactly what happens in an idiocracy scene. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, there's some of these things you just get more and more examples of, um, which are always interesting. Um, good writing is, you know, they kind of have a good, I don't think they, they think about it, but they have a good sense of the types of, human problems that keep coming up over and over and they're able to infuse that in their stories which i find really interesting yeah you you, you don't have to be doing it consciously to be to be doing yeah. it right or even i mean the example of mike judge he's doing it purposefully and the the example of daniel waters he's he's not even he he doesn't seem happy with what his movie is telling people which i just i find that so interesting because he did such a good job with it <laughs> you know um so uh yeah. I, anyway. Well, is 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 that the whole the artist is dead uh, theory that that once once the art has been created, the artist no longer controls it and they can't tell you what it means because now it's yours. I don't know. That, is that going that a little too far? Like, uh, I, I mean, it's it's. I, I think that's intentionally a little bit hyperbolic. Yeah. But but to the extent that that you know, I when I experience the art, you as the artist can't tell me that my experience is wrong. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. I feel like there is, you can't say it's a hundred percent subjective. You know what I mean? Like you can't, um, I'm trying to think of a good example, but I, I feel like there's gotta be an, ex- an example of, uh, of someone who has an interpretation that's just way off. That's just totally colored by their own lenses and just is objectively bad. I'm trying to think of I'm trying to think a good example here, but it's getting late. It's getting late in the program, so um, I I don't know. Well, we'll 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 take on like, uh, you know the the deconstruction of of modern uh, cinema at at a, at a yeah. later date. Well, like you know the Mona Lisa. Some people could say you know she has this emotion. Some people could say that emotion. Some people could say Da Vinci was thinking this or that or whatever. Like that's all fair game. But if you look at like the Mona Lisa and say like you know oh this is. Um, this is a statement about Trump. You're like that's that's ridiculous. Uh, you know, well, you, you you can you can be factually wrong about something in that sense, but but if you look at it and you say this makes me feel good about Trump or this makes me feel bad about Trump, 
that that is sub- completely subjective, and you can't be wrong about it. And so, you know, but like saying that uh, Demolition Man uh, makes me feel that uh, oppressive governments uh, are 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 a bad thing. Well, he can't say that you're wrong. He can say that's not the message that he intended, uh, and 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 not what he thinks the story he's telling is. But he can't tell you that your your interpretation is is incorrect because that's that's your interpretation. I guess so. I feel like I haven't broken down this issue quite in my mind. This is an interesting. Yeah, art, art theory is is not my strong suit. So we've definitely gone off the reservation. We here. started off talking uh, about machine learning and test and training set, and now we're talking no, about. No, no, no. We theory. started off talking about five year olds. Oh driving. yeah, that's true. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. It's an hour and twenty minutes. I think we've run the gamut. Uh, any other? Uh, any more? Um, uh, any last thoughts on everything we've discussed today? Uh, I'm curious where Escape from New York fits into this whole paradigm, <laughs> but but I have nothing more to say yeah. on that other than to throw that one out I'm there. I'm not escaping from New York. I'm just sitting on my butt waiting for this all to end. Um, <laughs> I thought at first, I thought there was like a small chance that things could get really bad. And now it's just, nah, it's just whatever. Um, yeah. Fingers, fingers crossed we're, we're on the, uh, on the mend, on the upswing, whatever the proper term is, but, but, uh. There's a light at the end of the tunnel, yeah, maybe? sounds good. <laughs> All right. Uh, have a, thanks for joining me today, Aaron, for this extra long episode. Uh, I don't think I'm going to break this up into two. I think this is just going to be one big episode. Uh, well, uh, congratulations to the listeners for making it through yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Well, you better because you got the best stuff at the end. Uh, all, right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com if you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account at MaxSklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.